Welcome to the Grace Monroe Podcast. We are a community of Jesus followers located in Monroe, Georgia, that exists to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. For more information about our church, visit graceformonroe.com. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, Grace Monroe. It is good to be with you. How are you doing today? Good. Well, I want to tell you, um, the last time I was with you uh, was in the mill. So I, this is my first time seeing all of the new facilities. I just got the tour of, of, of even the, what's going to be the new sanctuary here I'm hearing in this summer. Um, whoa! Are you guys excited? I mean, my goodness. I, t- I tell you, like, I just, I stepped onto the grounds this morning, and I honestly was just, I was really emotional. I was really m- moved. I just, I, you know, I've been hearing for years, and um, I've always been so deeply moved by, you know, you know, the vision of the acorn and Brian and Sadie coming out here. I know you know the story. And, and God showing them this acorn and putting this dream in their heart. And I've been hearing about all the renovations and all the stories, but this was the first time I saw it. And I was just so moved. And it just, my spirit rose up and said, look what God has done and look how far you've come um, just in, in a, a few years. So I just want to celebrate with you. It's, it's, it's amazing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to be back and see you guys uh, in, the, in the new building. But more importantly, um, to see what God will be doing in and through uh, you as the people of God and his expression right here in Monroe. So uh, it's a privilege to be with you, to share the word. How many of you were here uh, last week with Dave Rhodes? Yeah. Wow. That guy can preach, can't he? Wow, I know. And I'm following him, and I'm not Dave Rhodes. So just go ahead right now and just lower your expectations, okay? I'm no Dave Rhodes, but man, I sure do love to hear that guy preach. He was talking about, I did, um, I did listen to part of his message. He was talking about how we deal with our pain. And that is an incredible, um, that is incredibly important because pain in our world is inevitable. But are we going to allow God to work in our pain and transform our pain into purpose? That is the deep question. We're not going through this world without pain, but the purpose on the other end of it, that's the part that we have the choice to partner with God in that and let him transform our pain into purpose. And so awaken what is planted down into our soul, all those spiritual acorns that God is stewarding and watching over us. And it dovetails really well to what we're going to be talking about um, today as we continue in our series of Revelation and the letters to the seven churches. Um, But first, let me ask you, how many of you have ever had the strange experience of of hearing someone talk in their sleep? How many of you would be real honest and say, that person is me. I'm a sleep talker. Yeah. Or yeah. Or spouses be pointing at your, at your other, like, uh-huh. I remember I had a friend of mine when I was in high school and he slept over and, uh, somewhere in the middle of the night, 
um, I'd start, I heard some whispering, I heard some rumbling, and I'm like, what? I'm like, are you talking to me? And he was like, do you hear the train? And I said, what? And he was like, the train, do you hear the train? I was like, I don't think there's a train. I don't hear the train. And then he like snapped at me. He's like, do you hear the train? I'm like, no, Stuart, I don't hear a train. I, it's 3 a.m. There's no, I, you're at my house. Like there's no trains around here. I know, you know, and then all of a sudden he was a big dude, football player, big dude. He just sat up in the bed and he's like, do you hear the train? And it freaked me out. And then I realized like, oh, you're sleeping. And no, you don't hear a train either, at least not a real one. Um, and it's it's an unnerving experience when you see someone because they look awake, they sound awake, they look alert, they look conscious, but they're not. Something's not tracking. Or even weirder still, have you ever been around someone who's sleepwalking? Anybody ever had an experience with a sleepwalker? Yeah, maybe, you know, it's real common for children to sleepwalk, and sometimes they'll come find their way downstairs and be a little confused and whatever, and it's cute and it's funny. Weird thing when adults do it. I have an aunt, and my, my grandmother's sister is, lives in infamy in our family because she is a famous sleepwalker. And she's got many, many, many stories where her, her husband and children have many, many stories of her waking them up in the middle of the night, like rousing them, waking them, wake up. Wake up, wake up. And they wake up like 3 a.m. What is it, mom? What is it? Get this. She's like, I'm, I'm looking for my purse. Have you seen my purse? While she's holding her purse. <laughs> and there were a couple times they actually found her walking down the street in the middle of the night in the neighborhood out holding her purse looking for her purse. And the funny thing is, is that neurologists who study this, this odd phenomenon, which is called somnambulism, uh, say that five times fast, um, they, they've studied this, have found that it's part of our sort of unconscious parts of, of our brain activity that are floating to the surface during our sleep. But sleepwalkers tend to be fixated on a problem that's not actually a problem. In the case of my aunt, she's trying to solve a problem of finding her purse while she's holding her purse. I heard a story of another famous sleepwalker who, who for uh, psychologists studied him for years on end. Every evening at like 2 a.m., he would get up and meticulously vacuum his living room floor without the vacuum cleaner being on. <laughs> but his wife said just like every square inch of the carpet, he just had his pattern to do it with no recollection of it. Isn't that interesting? Well, maybe you've never personally, physically slept walk or... But I want to ask you this morning, and our text is asking us this morning, are you spiritually sleepwalking? Are you spiritually sleepwalking? Are you going around, showing up to the places you need to show up, doing some of the things that seem spiritual, that are spiritual indeed, that are helpful indeed, but yet have an appearance of being awake and being alert and being conscious, but inside being spiritually asleep. The scriptures say enough about this spiritual phenomenon. Chances are uh, you have or maybe are. But let's look at the 
passage this morning. It's in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, if you want to read along. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. I, as a confess, as a communicator and pastor, I do struggle finding certain books in the Bible. But Revelation's an easy one to find. It's at the very end. All right? Revelation 3, 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is my prayer this morning for myself and for all of us, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. Amen? So, what a, I'll be honest with you, what a challenging passage. What a convicting passage. This passage has really challenged and pushed me and pierced um, me this week as I've been preparing and, and studying. And I want us to wrestle with three questions over the next few minutes. Um, what are the consequences of being spiritually asleep? What will happen as a result if we stay in a state of being spiritually asleep and slumbering? What are the consequences of being asleep? What are the things that keep us asleep? Question number two. And the most important question, how do we wake up? Those are the three things I want us to really wrestle with today. Um, but before we dive into the consequences of being asleep, I want to just give us a real quick overview of what does the Bible say uh, about sleep. And like any good Bible metaphor, this metaphor is rich and deep and complex and multifaceted. And the first mention of sleep in the scriptures is of Adam. In Genesis it says, of course, we know the story. Adam is in a perfect, perfect place in the garden with a perfect God and in perfect communion with God, and yet God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. He knew that Adam needed a companion. He knew that Adam needed um, one who would stand alongside of him. So the Scripture says God put Adam in a deep sleep. He opened his flesh pulled out the rib, closed Adam back up, and formed Eve. 
and then bless their union together. And then, of course, set forth for us the covenant, the institution of marriage, and said, be fruitful and multiply and go into all the earth and have dominion and be prosperous and multiply. So we see that God put Adam into deep sleep to bring something deeper and more beautiful from him and to give him the revelation of covenant relationship and to bless that. The second one is Abraham, and it's kind of similar. God, in Genesis 15, God caused Abraham to go into a deep sleep. It says a deep darkness came upon, and he went into a deep sleep, a deep unconsciousness. And during that time, God gave him a revelation, gave him a vision of what his covenant blessing would look like. And he saw, he said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars on the sky and as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And through you, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, and through you I will make a covenant with my people that all of the nations on the earth, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be blessed through this covenant. That happened in a deep sleep. The third one, the third mention of sleep is Jacob who would become, who would have his name changed to Israel, who would be the, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, it says he was on a journey, and tired as he was, he laid his head on a rock. You got to be real tired to lay your head on a rock and to go to sleep. But while Jacob was sleeping, he saw the vision of heaven, and it said angels, he saw a vision of angels ascending and descending, and he saw heaven open, and that's when he put his faith in Yahweh, the God of, of Israel, and he took that rock that he rested on. And he made that to be an altar and a place of remembrance, and he called it Bethel, saying, the house of God. This is where God revealed himself to to me, to who he was. So we see that sleep and that rest when we are abiding, like John 15, like Jesus said, in the unforced rhythms of grace. When we're remaining in him, rest and sleep becomes a place of refreshment and revelation. That it's God's natural rhythms for us to, to there's, a, there's a time to work and there's a time to rest. And when we're practicing those rhythms of Sabbath and we're remaining and abiding by His Spirit, our rest becomes this place of, of refreshment and of revelation where we see a new picture of who God is and who we are in Him and who we're called to be as a result. But there's another picture of sleep in the Scripture. That when we become complacent. When we become complacent, we slip into a sleep that is not a spiritual sleep of refreshment. It's a spiritual slumber, a spiritual slothfulness. It's a place of complacency. And rather than the result being one of refreshment and fruitfulness, it's a result of weakness and atrophy. And so we see Samson Remember Samson, God's servant in the book of Judges, unparalleled strength, superhuman strength. But there was a mistress, what's her name? Sunday school, pop quiz, here we go. Delilah. And Delilah seduced Samson and finally figured out what was the source of his strength because she was working for the enemy, right? And she did what? She cut his hair. When did she do that? while he was sleeping. 
So we see this picture of being wooed in, of being of wooed in by temptation and becoming complacent. And then in the midst of that spiritual sleeping and complacency, he was robbed of his gift and his strength. The second place we see something similar is Jonah. Remember that guy? And Jonah had a clear mission to go to, pop quiz, where was he supposed to go? Nineveh. But he didn't go. He's like, I'm not going there to preach to them. <laughs> Jonah, he's like, what if I preach to them and they repent? I don't want them. I want them to experience the wrath of God. Come on, Jonah. And what did he do? He hopped on a boat, and a furious storm came because Jonah was in disobedience, but Jonah was down in the belly of the ship asleep. Again, this picture of, of passivity, of not taking hold of what God has called, and coming into this complacency. And say, by the way, randomly, how many of you guys saw the story of the dude who got swallowed by a whale this week? <laughs> that is crazy. I actually haven't read the story yet. My wife was telling me about it, so I need to check that out. But how crazy is that? He was literally swallowed by a whale and spit out. Anyway, um, so we see Jonah um, sleeping. The disciples, do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was in his, his, his hour of trial and deep physical, spiritual, mental anguish, he goes away to pray. He tells his, his beloved companions, stand watch with me, be alert. Pray for me in my hour of need. And Jesus goes away a little further, and that's when he prays this prayer of God. If there's any way for this cup to pass, let it pass. He comes back in his time of need and such anguish to find his disciples doing what? Sleeping. In Mark, he says to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So we see this connection with this spiritual sleeping, slumber, complacency, and its connection to temptation and pulling us off course. And even the spiritual leaders, the prophet Isaiah railed against the spiritual leaders of the day, saying to them, Israel's watchmen, they're supposed to be the ones who are awake, watching out. They're supposed to be like the watchmen on the wall, taking care of the people within. Israel's watchmen are blind. They lack knowledge. They're mute. They cannot, uh, they're mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream, and they love to sleep. What a scathing, like, rebuke to the religious leaders. And what is the metaphor that he uses? One of spiritual complacency and apathy and atrophy and slumber and sleepiness. This is what the Bible, this is how the Bible paints this picture of this really amazing metaphor of sleep. So what does our passage say about it? Our past, what does our passage say here about the consequences of being asleep? Because he says to you, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my, of, of my God. Your deeds were left unfinished. 
asleep at the wheel. And what are some of the reasons that, that we do this? The Apostle Paul, writing to the church, he says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Why does he write that? Because as all of you know who've been working to make this church what it is, and your service, and your giving, and your volunteering, well-doing is wearisome, isn't it? And if we don't stay in the God-ordained boundaries and rhythms of rest and grace, and we get outside of that, striving, working in our own strength, and working for our own purposes, we will grow weary in our well-doing, and we will slip into a spiritual slumber and complacency, and our works, our God-given purpose and potential will be found undone. And God has a unique and clear plan for your life. God's plan for you is not just that you will go to heaven one day. God's plan for you is that you will find purpose and find your calling and live that out and be a conduit of His purposes in the earth and to live with passion and to live with potential. But our world lulls us to sleep, and we lose sight of our God-given purpose. And we're busy doing everything but what God has called us to do at times. And I'm the chief of sinners. But the letter here is so clear. The church has to be awake, or we will leave what the good work God has called us to undone. And that would be a grave tragedy. And then he says, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know the hour or the day. Now, this language of of the thief was very common in the first century Christians, very common in the early church. There was a lot of language. Paul used this too. Um, And even Jesus himself mentioned of like, be alert, be awake, be watchful, for no man knows the day or hour of my return, of my coming. When will it come? And we tend to read these language, read a lot of, uh, particularly Revelation, because it has so many uh, complex metaphors in it, right? But I, I, I don't think this is um, in the sense of so much of like cruel punishment as it is really just natural consequence. Think about this. If you oversleep and you miss an event that you want to attend, something that maybe is, uh, you know, really has value for you, but you overslept, you miss it, the opportunity to attend that was taken from you. Now, the person hosting the event or even the person willing to add value to you is not the one necessarily taking that from you. You took it from yourself by oversleeping and missing out on it. And and we see, we've got to see this in 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 our world today that if we don't live awake, so much will be taken from us. And the biggest thief is time itself. How many parents because of just the stress and the strain and all of the things that come are sleepwalking through their child's lives, only to wake up months, years at a time and go, wow, those days were taken from me. They're gone now. And I was sleepwalking through them. Now more than ever, it's so critical that we as parents 
are awake. And you know, awake doesn't mean having all the answers. I got a teenager. I know with so much clarity that I don't have any answers for that whole situation. But I do know that God is calling me to be awake, awake to his heart, awake to his world, awake to his hopes and dreams and support. Or otherwise, I will let society lull me in and I'll be there, but not there. We all know this. Many of you probably grew up with, with, with parents who, based upon their own, this is not shaming, but based upon their own struggles, they were there, but not there. Physically present, emotionally absent, sleepwalking, and we're all guilty of it. But let us hear the clear call today to wake up before it's too late. So, I mean, a little more about that. What is it like to be asleep in your own marriage? What's it like to sleepwalk through the routines, do the things, have the conversations, pay the bills, even maybe go on dates together, but be there and not there. You know, I, I'm a people watcher. I was just talking to someone uh, 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 this morning about being a people watcher. Any people watchers out there? Yeah. And you know one of the things that, that, I, that I noticed, but it grieves my heart, is when you see people who, uh, who are out in restaurants, a married couple have been together for a while, and she's looking on her phone and he's looking on her phone or she's looking this way and he's looking this way and um and you know minutes like long periods of the meal pass and they've not said one word to one another they eat they get up they go home go to sleep wake up do it all again sleepwalking sleepwalking and time like a thief will just steal away these present precious moments that we are to be awake. And familiarity is the thief of wonder. Familiarity just, ah, been there, done that, keeps us asleep. So, what's, that's what the passage says about this, that our deeds will be left unfinished. We won't reach our potential. We won't find our calling if we're sleepwalking. And the good things will actually be, will vanish from us. So what are the things that keep us spiritually asleep? That's our second question. And there's a thousand things that can, but I want to draw our attention to two things because the passage references them. And the first, so self-deception and cynicism. Right here in the passage, he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. People see you one way, but I know on the inside I see you another way, and the two are, are incongruent. Self-deception. There's a popular book right now called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Here's a couple of quotes from this book. Self-deception is the strategic ploy our brains employ to avoid the appearance of violating social codes and norms, helping us to look good to others while getting what we really want goes on to say the brain is like a press secretary, constantly putting the most noble spin on our choices and behaviors 
while keeping our conscious minds in the dark. And we are involved in little self-deception activities all the time. And if you don't think you do them, well, you're deceived. Right? <laughs> Seriously, how many, of you, how many of you know this story? How many of you have been at the grocery store or been at some sort of store and you're on a mission and you're walking in to get what you do and just out of the corner of your eye, you see somebody you know looking at you and you're like, if I stop and have that conversation, I'm going to be here 15 minutes from now and I got to get my groceries and get home and I'm just going to pretend I didn't see them and I'm going to throw my grocery and put it on and walk on out and maybe check my phone to really be it and move on out and like, well, I didn't see them. Anybody ever done that? Be honest. Uh, there's probably a few more in here too, but let's be honest. We're deceiving. We would rather not be truthful and say, hello, good to see you, but I'm on a tight timeline and I need to go. I'll see you another time. We would have, rather have the appearance of, of, of looking like not being rude. We'd rather have the appearance, but actually that's a really rude thing to do. It's self-deceiving. How many of you have been at work, on your computer, on Facebook, or reading about the man who got swallowed by a whale or something, and all of a sudden your manager comes walking by, and you close that tab, pull up your spreadsheet, like just been tabbing away. Oh, hey boss, come here. I want to show you something on my spreadsheet. Let me find something to talk about, because I definitely wasn't Folks, anybody ever done that? Oh, the hands were a little, little, I saw a couple of these hands. Come on, put your hands up. I've done that. Yeah. What are we doing? We're deceiving. Who are we deceiving? Yeah, we're deceiving those around us, and we're also deceiving ourselves. Or this, this morning, I came in from Snellville down 78. I don't know, I passed seven cops, and several of them are on the road with radars. I'm like, what? What is going on on Highway 78 that we need this many cops between Snellville and Monroe? Anyway, the first one I saw, I mean, I'm just cruising along. What, what do, I'm cruising along, fiddling with something. What do I do? Hit the brakes, hands at 10 and 2. Like, look at me, officer. I'm just a law-abiding citizen, just obeying the rules and law. Self-deception. Right? Justifying. We do this all the time, and those are just silly little things we do. But what about when we justify our anger to our spouse? What about when I justify my sarcasm to my teenager because he really did leave his shoes in the floor for the 397th time, right? And I, and I just feel like I have a right to be sarcastic about it, as if he controls my emotions. But the way we want to justify our actions, I have a right to do this. No, it's self-deception, and we are the ones who suffer for it. And the scripture has a lot to say about self-deception. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, who he was quoting Isaiah, who had a lot to say about self-deception as well, you honor me with your lips. You say the right things. You sing the right things. You show up to all the right things, but your heart is far from me. Other places, Jesus sitting there, um, a couple of places in the scripture where they were wondering if Jesus was going to heal on the Sabbath. They're watching, and it says, Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, spoke to them. Um, think about the, the story Jesus told of the spiritual leader 
who's in the temple, beside the tax collector, beside the sinner, and the spiritual leader goes into the temple with this smug self-assurance, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. (laughs) Why, I give my tithe, and I fast twice a week, and I know all my scriptures. I thank you I'm not like him. I thank you that you've made me holy and righteous and blameless in your sight. (laughs) And then over here is this guy. One guy's got his head lifted to heaven going, wow, I'm doing pretty good over here, actually. The other guy's got his head dropped and going, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said this to his religiously affluent people. Who do you, which one of these men went home justified before God? Not, not this guy. Is there a bird in here? <laughs> hey, birdie. Yeah. Not, not the guy who's confident in his own self-righteousness and by default is self-deceived, but the one who throws himself onto the everlasting arms of mercy and grace and says, God, have mercy on me. I have fallen short. That one goes home justified before God. And think about um, when we wake up, we will find mercy and grace, right? The prodigal son, the scripture says he, he he had squandered everything and he was eating with the pigs. And when he had come to his senses, it's another way of saying when he woke up, He said, man, what am I doing? If I go home to my father's house, at least I'll have, I can work like a servant, like a slave, and at least I'll have a meal. I won't be a son. I won't be an heir anymore, but at least I can be a servant. And you know the story. The father is waiting not to shame him, not to slander him, not to punish him, but to greet him and welcome him home. And when we wake up from self-deception, we can be confident. We will wake up to God's never-ending mercy and grace. There may be natural consequences to our self-deception, sure. And God's grace and mercy will support us in the midst of it. How do we deal with self-deception? When we see it, we confess it. Confession. Confession. I want to say to you, the, the discipline of confession has, has been uh, a spiritual discipline that has existed in the church since the foundation of the church, but we over here on the Protestant side of things have really uh, missed out on the beauty of this. The scriptures say, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. There's a healing that takes place when we confess, when we when we take down the, the facade of self-deception and are honest, and I want to say to you, I think, it is my conviction, that every believer should have one person, a confidant, a counselor, a pastor, uh, someone in your community, a spouse, that you can tell anything to. Anything to. I want to tell you, if there's something that haunts you, something you've done or has been done to you, and it's never been, you've never had the grace of bringing that into the light, and never had the power of 
of a brother or sister in Christ look you in the eyes and say, you have confessed your sins before God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ. Be blessed from your heavy, heavy, be freed from your heavy, heavy burden that you're carrying. Confession is a powerful thing, and it undoes self-deception, where we're always having to put up some facade to justify who we are instead. And we've been doing it since the garden, right? What happened with Adam and Eve after they did the thing? They're hiding, and they put fig leaves on, and we're still hiding. It's just our fig leaves are a little more elaborate today. But it's the same thing. Self-deception. The second one is cynicism. The Bible defines, or not the Bible, the dictionary defines cynicism as being continually distrustful, contemptuous, and pessimistic. We live in such a cynical age. Everyone is, and, and listen, we've come through these polarizing political season and a, and, and a crushing pandemic where everybody's online giving their opinion about everything and what everyone should do. And it's no wonder that we're all dealing with this fatigue and feeling cynical toward the world. But cynicism is dangerous. It's an unhealthy coping mechanism. We try to put on an armor to protect ourselves from being let down. It's an understandable one, but it's an unhealthy one. Cynicism. And it plays itself out with this sort of negativity, this sort of fault-finding, this sort of complaining, this sort of meh, yeah, whatever. Probably won't be as good as they say it's going to be. Huh, yeah, meh, fine, been here, done that. Do you know how that attitude can kind of creep in sometimes, especially if you're tired, right? I, 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 I find it funny how people use the word fine today, right? To talk about everything. How you doing? I'm fine. Oh, well, you just got back from vacation, right? How was it? I'm fine. Well, I saw you at the restaurant the other night. How was your meal? Yeah, it's fine. Well, it's okay. Fine. You ever, you know when people say that? You know when you say that? <laughs> it's because familiarity has become the thief of wonder. We're not called to be fine. We're called to flourish. We're called to be awake. We're called that every moment is a miracle of God's unfolding grace. Every conversation we have, every interaction we have, every opportunity to connect with our loved ones and with people around us, every opportunity is, is an unfolding moment to see God, Emmanuel, with us. But often, we're just asleep. We've let this world lull us to sleep. And so we swipe, and then we scroll. Well, I'm unimpressed. We change the channels. Huh. We're, what am I going to watch on Netflix tonight? You know, we, we just stay in this sort of... Um, yeah, cloud and fog. And God has called us to wake up. So... In closing, how do we wake up? We've talked about the consequences. We've talked about the things that keep us. How do we wake up? The passage tells us two things. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. How do you do that? By remembering 
what I've said to you and repenting. By remembering and repenting. The psalmist said, I recount the ways of your faithfulness. I will bring them before my mind. I will not just wait for someone to remind me. I will remember your faithfulness to me. I will remember. This is God's lament to his people throughout Scripture. You have forgotten me. You have forgotten my faithfulness. Oh, that you would remember the ways. Remember that I rescued you with my strong right hand out of Egypt and brought you through the wilderness and into the promised land. Oh, Israel, you have forgotten my ways. You have forgotten me. You've forgotten my faithfulness. Guys, we know we are asleep when we have forgotten to remember all the ways God has been at work and is at work and has promised to be at work in our lives. Recount the ways. And if you can't remember, if it's a heavy and hard season, it's understandable. Find someone who does. Find someone who is spiritually awake and alive and let them be a gift of refreshment to your heart, to your soul, to your mind. We have to be about the business of remembering God's faithfulness. And the second one is repent. And Ben, you guys can make your way on up. This is a word that has a lot of baggage with it. If you're like me, maybe you grew up, that word conjures up some angry preacher yelling and screaming about going to hell, right? You better repent! I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, where there is a very well-known um, fundamentalist university there, and they would stand on the side of the road in the middle of the South Carolina heat in three-piece suits with a bullhorn. I had one guy scream at me because I was poor as dirt. I didn't have no air conditioning in my car, and I was sweating, and the windows were down, and he literally leaned over like at my car with a bullhorn, and he said, you think it's hot today? Wait till you burn in hell, you sinner, if you don't repent. I was like, oh my gosh. I was a new Christian, and I was, truthfully, my first reaction, I was just so angry. I was like, that, that, that is not the heart of, that's not the heart of God. Jesus didn't go around doing that, and it drove me back. I went back to my apartment, and I was like, I'm, I, I opened my Bible, and I just happened to open right to the gospel of Mark. And there it is in red letters. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are, repent. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Maybe I am going to hell. Whoa. But you know, it, it pushed me. It pushed me deeper to go, what does this word really mean? Turns out it's beautiful. The Greek word is metanoia. Meta, where we get our word metamorphosis. Noia means perception, how you see, how you see God, and as a result, how you see yourself and others. So Jesus comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is now. He even go far, so far to say the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's not out there. It's right here. It's now. It's today. But if you want to see it, you've got to have a transformation in how you see the world, 
how you see God and how you see yourself as a result. You've got to have a repentance. Metanoia. Paul would say it like this. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed, same word, meta, transformed, by the renewing of your mind, noia, the way you see. You think about the caterpillar. The caterpillar with its segmented body crawls on the ground, and when it comes to a rock and it crawls over the rock, the caterpillar's body takes on the shape of the rock. It conforms to the pattern of the world. But when that caterpillar goes into its cocoon and undergoes a metamorphosis, a transformation, it comes out new, above the limiting contours of this world. So Paul would say, set your mind on things above, not on things below. Expand your vision. Expand your horizon. Expand your understanding of God. And Paul would also say, wake up, O sleeper. And lastly, we repent, we remember. And there's a third thing that happens when we wake up, but it's not something we do. It's a resurrection. And Jesus is the resurrection and life. And in fact, the whole book of Revelation is about painting the picture of the resurrected Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning in authority and power. That is the central theme of the book of Revelation, to see him resurrected. Two other places in Scripture we didn't talk about sleep. Lazarus. Mary and Martha lost their beloved brother, and they were bitter and weeping. Jesus, too, turned to his disciples and said, Our friend Lazarus is asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. The second one is in Mark 5, the little girl who was dead. The parents came and said, our girl is dead. Would you come and raise her? He goes in, and they're weeping, and they're wailing. And Jesus says, why all this commotion? The little girl is not dead. She's asleep. We have to, they were offended, as you and I would be offended. If we were grieving the loss of our daughter, and someone came in and said something that we didn't understand, it would feel offensive. But Jesus walks in, and he, he put them out of the room. And he went in there, and he spoke in Aramaic, and he said, Talitha Kalum, which means, little girl, wake up. And the language is really important here, because it's, as, it's a tender phrase. It's like a father or a grandfather would speak to their child or their grandchild little one, like they would wake them from a sleep on a Saturday morning where there was nothing to rush off to but just breakfast and communion. Little girl, wake up. And I think this is so powerful when we're grappling with what does it mean for us to wake up. Because here's Jesus facing the most imminent enemy known to humanity, death, which ultimately the book of Revelation tells us he will defeat in its entirety and throw it into the lake of fire. But here's Jesus with this all-consuming, all-encompassing enemy. He doesn't yell at it. He doesn't have to scream at it. He doesn't even have to stand up and overcome it. He sits down, takes her by the hand, and says, little one, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. And you know, 
His compassionate heart is leaning over you today. Maybe you sense it. He wants to take you by your hand, not to shame you, not to condemn you, not to punish you, but to call forth what is lying dormant within you. Wake up. Wake up. There's good things to come. Thanks for listening. Once again, our mission at Grace Monroe is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, go to graceformonroe.com connect. Also, if you felt blessed by our ministry and want to partner with us financially, everything you need to know about giving is online at graceformonroe.com give. We hope you have a wonderful week. Be blessed.